0: Today, my sermon is Make a Marriage Great Again. Make a Marriage Great Again. I have been thinking on and studying on marriage for a couple of weeks now. And uh, I asked Katrina a couple of days ago, what is a marriage? Just to see what her answer was. And I have been thinking about that and I want to answer that question from the Bible. But I want to answer it in such a way to perhaps give you all part of my conclusion. Set marriage in its proper frame of reference in our minds so that we see, just like every Christian knows, that our walk with the Lord is a a lifelong thing that we're growing in and we're learning in and we all know that we're supposed to apply ourselves to it. And that it's a high calling to be a Christian. It is the highest calling. But I'm gonna say, right along with that, is marriage, the high calling of marriage. And marriage is a ministry, really. And so if you've ever wondered, what am I doing for the Lord? What is my ministry? What you know, how can I have a positive effect on this world? Really, I hope that I can show this, but marriage, a good marriage preaches to the world. It says so, so much. And there is no better counsel on marriage than the Bible. And so we're going to take a look at it. I'm probably not going to read all of these verses that I have, but I chose these three passages to, to, to tell a story, to paint a picture. And it's... I'm going to read from Genesis 2. I'm going to read from Matthew 19. And if I don't change my mind, I'm going to read from Ephesians 5. And I'll just tell you up front so that you'll catch it as we come across it. And the reason I'm reading these three passages is because this is not the only three. It's actually quoted five times. But these three passages. Well, first, Genesis establishes it. Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So Genesis, the God speaking to Adam lays this foundation and then Jesus quotes that and then Paul quotes that and Peter even hearkens back to it but indirectly and so it's that that verse that I want us to think about therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they too shall be one flesh but let me read you some verses I'm going to start with Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 and then I'm going to jump right to verse 21 just for context sake and the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone I will make him and help meet for him. Jump a couple verses. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man, and said, and Adam said, sorry, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now this is actually God speaking in this next sentence and I can clarify that for you in a minute because Jesus said that it was. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. Now, I want to read you a couple other passages here that I reference, but before I do I want to make a point that this word cleave, this word cleave is an important word in marriage. And it's a very powerful word. It probably means something stronger in their minds than perhaps what it does mean in our minds. But it really means bonded. Like adhered or glued together. Inseparable is the point. And now let me say this too. Everybody here has a past. Everybody here has a present and everybody here has a future. But everything that I'm talking about today... It's about from here to the future. That's it. I'm not dealing with anything that has happened in anybody's past. And if we had the whole congregation here, I would want to elaborate on that even more. I thank God today that I believe that I'm among people who have a great marriage and a happy marriage. And I'm thankful for that. And so really it's like, why am I even preaching this today? I don't know, but it is what the Lord laid on my heart. But this, this word cleave, we want to think about it that way. That God chose that word. And it's a a bond, it's an adhering, it's a, well, it's it's two become one, literally, literally. And we're going to get into that. But Jesus quotes this passage in response to a question of the Pharisees. But he says, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said... For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, which means separate, let no man pull apart. What is cleaved or bonded by God, let no man Put apart. Now, let me read this also out of Ephesians. It's a little bit longer of a passage, but it has so much to say in there that I want to read it. Wives, <clears throat> submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. It's the word of God. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men, in other words, as Christ loved the church, and he gives examples of how, To what extent Christ loved the church? He gives some application. So ought you, so to speak, to love your wife as your own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Man, that's huge. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause, he quotes it, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, I'm not really necessarily going exegetically over those passages, but I wanted to read them to set a framework for us to look at some things. But what I really want to do first is take some time to really get some of the amazing, amazing things that the Bible says about marriage. I mean, it says some truly profound things. And if we stop and think about it, if you're familiar with the first six days of creation... On day six, well, in the first six days of creation, really, if we kind of examine it through a scientific lens, things are gravitating from a chaos, from a darkness, from a void, to higher and higher levels of complexity, so to speak, higher and higher levels of advanced life, we could say it that way, until we get to the pinnacle of all of that, which is Adam and Eve, the man and the woman. But really, the last thing created was marriage. Because after Adam and Eve were created, this is still on day six, when Eve was brought to Adam, God instituted, we could say it that way, created this thing that we call marriage. And so in that light, we need to understand something. Marriage is a God thing. Man didn't create marriage, we didn't imagine marriage, we don't have the liberty to define marriage. We don't have the right to even say, well, this is how it ought to be, or this is how you ought to do, or this is how you ought to do. Because God actually tells us what marriage is, what it isn't, and how we ought to live ourselves in it. But just thinking about that fact, well, think about this. This, to me, is super powerful. I won't be able to convey this to the fullest of what's in my heart about it. But marriage was there in paradise. Before sin ever existed. For instance, if, let's just say hypothetically, if Adam and Eve never took of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where would they be now? Still in paradise. Still in a perfect world, an unfallen world, a sinless world, and still married. It's amazing to me to actually think about the, the fact that before sin ever existed, marriage existed and that tells me something about marriage you see before sin ever existed everything before that was pure and holy and undefiled and would last forever everything before sin is as pure as it can be really in fact it wasn't until god made marriage That he said, it said, and he looked upon all that he had made and said, behold, it is very good. How do I know that it wasn't until he made marriage that he said that? Because when he looked at Adam alone, he said, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. And so he makes Eve and creates this institution called marriage. And then he says, behold, it says God looked at everything he had made and said, behold, it is all very good and so marriage if we stop and if we really stop and think about this it's like i said it was a marriage made in heaven quite literally it was a marriage made in heaven it was a marriage before sin ever existed and so in that sense you got to understand this marriage is not a solution to sin or a fall in a way marriage is the one piece of paradise that god let us keep marriage is the one piece of the Garden of Eden that we still have. It's the one thing that existed there. Because what did we lose? We lost our longevity. We lost our immortality. We lost our health, so to speak. We lost a lot of things. We lost the free food that was growing abundant in the garden which God had planted. And man and woman was punished. And the earth itself was cursed. But marriage was maintained. And to me, that's super powerful. I'm saying... I want us to think about it that way. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's not necessarily a profound teaching or necessarily any instruction to give you from that. But if we begin to think about marriage in its full light, it's a beautiful thing. Now, if what I have said is, is true, that marriage was really the pinnacle of creation there, the marriage, the bond between a man and a woman... My marriage is greater than myself. Marriage is greater than self. She could say the same thing. Her marriage is greater than herself. Greater in what way? Greater in importance. It's greater in its calling. And it's greater in its ministry. I'm actually going to touch on this later, or maybe I'll skip it since I feel like covering it now. But let me say this. I have seen, I have seen it happen. And I have even done it to an extent and had to learn from it. But whatever you may think your ministry is or whatever God may have called you to do, it will never exceed your marriage. It never will. That People can debate that all the day long, but I've seen the fruit of it. I've seen the truth of it here. And what I mean by that is this. Your ministry will never grow beyond the strength of your marriage. It never will. And if, if people have this thing in mind, and I know where they get it from, and we could go look at that passage, and I could show you why that's not really the right way to think about it. But they have this thing in mind that, no, God has laid this on my heart to do this, and I don't care if she likes it or not. I don't care if it's going to damage our marriage. Oh, well, so, so she's going to leave me over this. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Let me, let me tell you the truth. If you go that route, your, your ministry will fail. It will fail. Because the truth is, she is you. She is you. Y'all are one flesh. And you cannot go that route. Now, I don't mean, of course, there probably needs to be some discussion between the man and the woman. Some, Some, you know, talking back and forth and saying, you know, what is it? How can I go about this? I really believe the Lord has laid this on my heart. But I do know that is the case for sure. Whatever you think that your ministry is or whatever it truly is, It's never going to be at the cost of your marriage. You should never forsake the value of your marriage for your ministry. Because the one one has to be built on the platform of the marriage. The marriage was your first calling. And the, the the ministry has to stand upon that foundation. And you take that foundation out from under it, and the ministry will collapse. Hear me out on this one. Because this is a little bit deep, but it's worth thinking about. Marriage was made for no, sorry, marriage was not made for man, but man was made for marriage. I get that from you know, where the Pharisees was well, they was, you know, very zealous about the Sabbath. And they were saying, Oh, you're breaking these laws and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, Man was not made for the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, the Sabbath was made for the sake of man. And in that sense, we could say that about marriage. But I really think that what he points to here is that man was actually made for marriage. Think about it this way. He says, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this cause. For for what cause? Because I have made them male and female. In a way, you could say it like this. God made them male and female for the sake of marriage. In other words, there's a lot of things that exist on planet earth that can perpetuate themselves and reproduce, so to speak, without male and female. And also, it's obvious that all of the other living things of creation do not have a longing in their heart to have that spouse, that loved one. You see, when God made Adam, Eve was in him. Literally. She wasn't fully constituted, but she was there. Eve was in Adam when Adam was made. And God did that intentionally. And what we read following there was really just God teaching Adam what he did and why he did it. But my point is, they were made male and female because the ultimate design was marriage that somehow there's this mystical amazing quality and property to marriage that god is going to take adam and divide him out and now we have two people and through this thing that we call marriage god has taken these two individuals and saying i'm going to reunite you back to one again you're one again just you're just as one now as you were when eve was in adam and so it's very powerful Part of my evidence for this is imagine a world without marriage. Imagine millions of men, billions of men, or billions of women, and there is no such thing as marriage. I can't speak for all the men here, but I know this much. If there's no such thing as marriage, if there's no such thing as a true commitment and a bond that's holy in the sight of the Lord, there is no meaning to life for me. I mean really why would I get up and go to work why would I do anything why would I care if the house is falling in? there's no one for me to be caring for there's no one for me to be protecting there I mean honestly there's many things that separate man from the animals but marriage is one of them in fact think about this again all I'm doing right now is trying to put marriage here in your mind here not here And definitely not under your feet, but here. It's higher than you. Sometimes it requires selfless acts. Sometimes it requires submission on both parts. Sometimes it requires sacrifice. Sometimes it requires mercy. Sometimes it requires forgiveness. But the marriage is here, and you are here for both of you. The marriage is the higher thing. But... I've been doing this a lot lately, losing my train of thought. I just lost it, I just lost my train of thought. Maybe I'll get it back in a minute. But I know that a world without marriage, okay, here's where I was going. Think about this. Mankind is the only creation in the whole universe in any dimension that marries. Animals do not marry, even angels do not marry. Mankind, we are the only thing that exists that marries and so to me that's very 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 powerful marriage is greater than the sum of its parts what do I mean by that well yes marriage is in a way a reduction of parts its two is now reduced to one two becomes one but really in this one one is greater than three I mean the fact that two people become one flesh in this marriage bond the marriage itself and then all of the things that come out of the marriage it's, it's, I mean how do I explain it? Other than saying marriage is greater than the sum of its parts. Again my marriage is greater than just the combination of me and her. It's something even higher than that. You know Katrina asked me a question. If marriage is uniquely a Bible thing then why do cultures all over the world practice it? My first response was we could never really overestimate and over-appreciate the work of missionaries over the last thousands of years. It's easy for us to not really know everywhere that people have gone, but I know that the impact and influence of mission work and Christianity has affected the entire world. But even if not through missions, cultures seeing this beautiful thing that people that had a good marriage in the past, you know, they adopted that. But also, it's obvious to me that it's in the heart of man, and what I had told her is, at the very least... Marriage is going to be something that man learns because of his own nature, even if he learns it through the perspective of hurt. So maybe him and his wife or, uh, you know, spouse or whatever were together and he left her or she left him and they realized, man, that hurts. That hurts. I don't I don't like that. And in their heart, they would say, you know, I want someone who loves me who I am and who will stay with me I want a life partner it's in the heart of man is my point it's in the heart of man in another sense that marriage is greater than the sum of its parts is people two people that are happily married can accomplish more than two people that are not married at all the marriage itself does something in the man and in the woman it strengthens them it empowers them to where that they too can outdo any other two that's not married. Especially when it comes to for the sake of the Lord. And so my message will hopefully be brief this morning. But this is my ultimate point. Your marriage has a message. And every message has a ministry. So in your marriage there's a message to the world and there's a ministry and it's in this light that I want to think about it. I don't know if I'll be able to really get this across but I really believe that our country needs a revival among Christian people in their own marriages. Now here's why I say that. I am 125 billion trillion percent against what I now call the alphabet soup group, the XYZs. Okay, I'm a 100,000% against that. But here's why I believe that exists today. Because Christian men and women began to forsake at some level the holiness and sanctity and high calling of marriage And from our way of treating our spouse, our marriage, the culture has followed. The culture has learned. And so here's what I'm getting at. We can go, and I support it. Do some street ministry. Get the word out. You know, me and Alan has been doing that stuff for two weeks now. Tell the LGBTQ community what the Bible says. But I really believe that you'll have an even greater effect than just saying, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this. And be able to say, this is what you should do. This is what marriage is supposed to be. In other words, I believe, I believe with all my heart. I mean, there's this, what is it, this place called Asbury, there's a great revival going there. Seems legit, I'm so thankful. If it is, praise the Lord for it. But I really believe if... If Christianity wants to have a major impact on this world, there's one way to just go about preaching and just tell them you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do this and this is sin and this is sin and this should not, should not be and all that. But I'll tell you where I really believe the root lies. Why did they ever drift this way? Because they're not seeing anything in our marriage that they say, I want that. That's what I want. I was thinking about this. To what extent? Does a weakened value of marriage have among the people of God? Well, it says to the teenager, what am I saving myself for? And so what we want to do is to set marriage right. I'm not even saying, uh, you know, fake it, drum it up, dramatize it. No, I'm saying do it exactly like the Bible says. And it will be something that your children and the teenagers even people in the community that observe it, it will be something that they feel like is worth saving themselves for. There should be, I mean, I don't know how to how to really express it, but there should be this love and this joy and this, it should be obvious to anyone on the planet when they see Alan and Bobby Joe and Mike and Andy and Stephen and training, Katrina and James and Nika. They should be able to see immediately. You cannot separate those two. They are inseparable. No matter how many attacks we launch on this, no matter how bad we hate this bright light that they're shining. Because, by the way, that's why your marriage is under attack. It's because Satan hates marriage. Because marriage is a bright and burning light. It really is. It is a light to all of the world in marriage, in this relationship with marriage. And when done rightly, it even according to Ephesians 5, it carries the gospel message in it. That as Christ is the head of the church and the husband is the head of the wife and the savior of the body and as the church submits to Christ, so the wife submits to the husband and all of this thing, the marriage actually carries the gospel message in it without even actually having to say anything. In a lot of ways, the marriage is like the gospel illustrated when done biblically. But if we could have that, and I'm just wanting to encourage you, that's all. It just, I mean, really. I... Just when you get time today, think about it. Is there anything that my marriage lacks that I could fix? It may be minor things, like hanging the towel on the hook in the bathroom, okay? It could be minor things, it could be major things. But I spend a lot of time encouraging people to get in their closet and ask themselves before the Lord, Lord, what can I do for you? Or what can I do to be right with you? Or how can I repent of this? Or how can I overcome that? I want to encourage you for something I really hope you can get is super duper duper powerful. Y'all may have a perfect marriage. And if that's the case, God bless you. And I'm thankful. But if there is anything that you can do, do it. If you went to your spouse and said, is there anything that I could change to help convey to you that I love you more? Or that I, you know, I want to do this or I want to do that. If they say, yeah, you could do this. Well, then do it. Make the changes. I mean, marriage is a blessing, man. Marriage is a gift of God. He didn't have to give us that. He didn't have to. But it is a blessing and it is a gift and it's something that's made fun of today. When a man is truly devoted and committed and adhered and bonded to his wife, he won't talk about other women. He won't make jokes about other women. And no one will come to him and say something about another woman on a job or whatever because they know. Look, people might think that this is, oh, you're just taking it too far, man. I don't think so. You be the judge. But if you were in a circumstance where somebody was like, hey, look at that. No. I don't care nothing about that, man. I don't even want to plant this idea in your mind that I'm willing to look. I mean, I know that it sounds crazy, but even Job said he made a covenant with his eyes. I think husbands should do that. How powerful of a message would that be to say, my eyes. Or her eyes. They belong to her. And I don't care what the world tries to put out there for the clickbait or the billboard bait or the jokester at the job. Don't even look. There's a certain amount of beauty in, in, in holiness and I've even thought about preaching on this thing called the beauty and the beauties of holiness but I encourage you go to that level I mean you may laugh at me now man to man you may laugh at me so be it but I encourage you and I want to put this into practice I did this for years but I got slack on it and I want to re sort of dedicate myself to these things have not been comfortable with the things that the world puts out there Again, I don't like using myself as an example. I'll tell you before I use myself as an example, I'm a failure. Let me tell you that. I'm a failure. So I'm not boasting. But for years and years when we would watch TV shows or whatever, if there was anything that came on that TV that I thought might offend her in any way, I would literally turn my head where she knew. I don't care nothing about that. And people today probably think that's Foolish. It's unnecessary. She don't really care. Let me tell you something. Look but don't touch is a lie. It does eat on the marriage like a canker worm. And most of the time, if the woman says, oh yeah, I'm okay. She's just trying to be comfortable in her own skin. In reality, if she could say her heart, she would be like, yeah, I wish he wouldn't look. I want to be that one for him and the only one. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that that's how it ought to be the wife ought to want that and ought to feel like she is that so look but don't touch that's a lie i won't say that it does an equal amount of damage but it does damage and there's other things that in the past you know katrina and i was talking about this the other day i've probably heard of it i won't go into detail but the adults maybe know what i'm talking about 10 15 years ago there was this kind of meme or joke thing going around called the hall pass the hall pass, like, oh, this, you know, if they had this favorite actor or actress, you know, that's their one excuse. If they could ever go on a date with that person, I'd just have to let them, you know, because it's, it's their hall pass. Let me start. listen, young people, maybe I'm talking to young people that will end up being married one day. And when you get married, you'll understand this. Don't ever do that stuff. Don't ever, don't ever, my sons. Don't ever do anything that makes your wife feel like she's not 100% of everything that you want in life. And the more that you put that into practice, the more you'll see that she is. She is. She is everything that you want in life. If y'all are truly in love, and especially now, of course, how to have a successful marriage, put God first. Put God first. No doubt about that. Marry a believer, don't marry an unbeliever. Marrying a believer, that already sets you on a path to success. But go out of your way boys, go out of your way to really show her and live in such a way that she is your one true love. So I mean, I didn't even plan on getting all these things. I really didn't, it was like totally, I just got off track with my notes, but you know, I mean, bring it back around to this. Marriage is that important. It is that big of a deal. And I also know that the... And that's really just more about the men. But women can do that too. I encourage you women. Don't ever make your man feel like he's not your man. In any way. Don't ever make him feel like he's less of what you wish he would be. Of course, there can be discussions. Like, I wish you would do this or I wish you would do that. But don't ever make him feel like... He's not your soulmate, your man. And in a sense, Adam and Eve were soulmates. They were. The Bible says she was taken out of him. And they are one flesh. And so in that, in that way, they are soulmates. And we want to live our life. We want to shine that light of marriage. Marriage is a beautiful light, but it can't be shined through words. It has to be shined through life. For, for men, for a group of men at work to see another man and where they know, they're like, no, man, he loves his wife. I mean, really, he's in love with his wife. They've been married 15 years, 20 years, 10 years. But he loves her. It will work in their heart. It shouldn't be an embarrassing thing if you're around the whole group of guys and your wife is there to go and open the door. It should, I mean, we should be proud to do that kind of stuff. Open the door for her. If it's raining, get the umbrella out. You know, I mean, we should be proud to. We should want to do that kind of thing. And who cares what everybody else thinks? This is the way God wanted it to be. And so this is the way we want to do it. So, your marriage is your primary mission. If you're in, let me say this. Without marriage, man is incomplete. But with an incomplete marriage, man is still incomplete. And how how can I have a complete marriage? Marriage, well, how can I find this, this unity that we want or perhaps that we once had that we lost? The well, first thing I want to tell you is what I've already said. Do it God's way. I don't care what the marriage counselor says or the marriage counseling books say because so many of them go with this secular wisdom and they tell you, you should make this list and you should do this and you should do this and you should do this. The Bible gets at the root of it because God knows the truth of the heart of man. And on that note, let me tell you something. Every single time it seems that the husband and wife issue is addressed, it says husbands, love your wives. But what it means is this, be loving to your wife. Of course, every husband would say, well, I do love my wife. But it says nourish and cherish. And so it really means husbands, be loving toward your wives. Why does it say that? Because affection doesn't come naturally for most men. That's why it has to be commanded. And every time, whether it's Peter or Colossians or Ephesians it says it every time because this is the deepest issue this when we go to the word for marriage counseling we get the truth and the truth is there's a deep issue here that says husbands be loving towards your wives that's the way that I would word it be loving towards your wives because the wives need that but also in five verses It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Well, submission comes no more naturally to a woman than does affection to the man. It has to be in there because it's not. If all women were just naturally submissive to their husband, it wouldn't be there. It's there because deep down, and the the women themselves have to examine that. I don't want to get into that, but deep down... It's a, it's a struggle. It's a trial. And I want you to think about it in that way. If you feel like your husband isn't affectionate enough or you feel like you're distant and you want to grow close together, well, I want you all to grow close together too. But understand, it's just as hard for him to be as affectionate as you want him to be as it is for you to be as submissive as he wants you to be. And so we need to think on those things and gravitate towards one another as we both work on them together and also understand. Oftentimes, people who don't even know each other can be united knowing that they have a common enemy. And in your marriage, you do have a common enemy. Satan is real. Okay, this is one of the questions we're planning to ask in some of the street interviews that we're hoping to start next Saturday. We'll see if we can or not. Satan is a real being. The Bible teaches he's just as real as the fact that you and and I are real. And then he's roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may devour and when first it seems to me that satan attacks churches that's his primary target is churches second is marriages third would be individuals but the marriage itself if you don't think that your marriage is under attack let me ask you a question we often talk about it's obvious that hollywood has this agenda what is the agenda to destroy marriage ultimately that is the agenda they can portray and paint this whole idea of freedom of expression be a free spirit do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law that's how they might would word it just do whatever you want to do pleasure is the meaning of life but let me tell you what's at the heart of that what's the real agenda destroy marriage if they can destroy marriage which they're doing they can destroy the whole culture Listen, even a culture who doesn't practice Christianity but practices Christian marriage will be a strong culture with a strong economy and a strong army and strong infrastructure. Why? Because it's in the men of that culture to get up and build and work and provide and then come home and love and be loving and raise children. I'm saying the, the values that come with marriage. If you want to make America great again, make a marriage great again. I'm telling you, I can't say it enough. I know for a fact that's the case. So the real agenda, what's really behind this drive, of course they're dehumanizing people, but they're also destroying marriage. And I believe that we kind of identified it too late. There's a lot of things that I could get into. But if we really plotted this out, if you looked at this map of this birth and this growth of this thing we call the LGBT movement, and you see this line, I think there should be another graph that shows why does that line do that. And if you took a survey of Christian men and women all over the world today and charted out this value of marriage compared to what it once was, as the LGBT line is doing this, the value of marriage line is doing this. They're a mirror image of each other. I really do believe that that would be the case. I really do believe that if we, if the world could see, and if Christian people had a revival of saying, "Man, let's 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 let let our marriage be our primary ministry. Let's work on each other, and don't do it fake. I'm not saying fake it." Don't do it the, the fake book way, where every picture is a smile and a laugh, but in reality, y'all was arguing five minutes ago, and as soon as you're done taking the picture, you're going to start arguing again. No, do it the real way. Get, get it in your heart. Get it in your heart that marriage is a gift, a gift that God has given you, and your husband or your wife is a gift that God has given you, and God has called you to fulfill a role in their lives. And it's, it's one of your highest callings. Okay, some just advice again, maybe it's for the young ones to take this with them into the future. Do not say foolish and hurtful things. Do not do that. Listen. Even in the heat of anger, the heat of anger is not an excuse or a justified reason to say, I wish I had somebody else. Or, I wish I wasn't with you. I wish you this, you this, I can't stand you. I don't want to... Don't do that. Do not do that. The heat of anger is... I mean, that's where the devil has control in a sense. When you're losing control to anger, you better believe sin is roaring up in you like a monster and about to yell out things that you should not say. You should not say. Now, of course, husbands and wives are going to get into... Arguments at times, reasoning with one another, but it should never, you should never, never feel the freedom to say hurtful, damaging things, especially when it's done out of spite. Just to jab them. You would not do anyone else in the world that way. If you found yourself in an argument with your boss, a heated argument. You wouldn't try and hit him in the heart where it hurts the most. You wouldn't try and tell him how invaluable he is or all this kind of stuff. You wouldn't do it. And so, how sad is it, and how, how strong has the effect of worldliness been when we do argue and say hateful and spiteful things to our spouse, and then say, "Well, I was, I was mad." Well, when you was mad at the guy down at work, why did you say it to him? So let's be careful, don't say foolish and hurtful things. And anger is never an excuse to lash out. Also, no decision in life. And men seem to face this, it seems to me men face this more often than women do. But no decision in life should ever be made knowing there's a cost to my marriage for this decision. That decision could be a career choice or, you know, moving to another country or it could be a lot of different things, a hobby. But no, I I don't know how to put it into words, really, but even to me, marriage is such a, I mean, from the word of God, I can say this, that marriage is such a precious thing that we shouldn't make any decision that even puts it at risk. It's like, well, I could do this. But we might grow apart, but I don't think we'll grow apart. We're so close, but what if we do grow apart because I do? Well, you know, if I do this, I'm going to be gone five days a week, three nights a week for years. And although, yeah, it's a $200,000 job, there's no hundreds of thousands of dollars that you can say is worth losing a marriage or damaging a marriage. And so my whole point, I'm failing to make it, but marriage... Before you're considering anything else, going into a new field, taking on a new hobby, applying yourself in one direction or another. Like, I went through something like this a little over a year ago with music. So I do a whole lot less music now. But any time you're finding this self-interest that is going to carry you away from the marriage interest, don't do that. Do not do it. You will regret it because there is no greater loss. I don't want to get into this stuff, but if you do look at what's the effect of divorce, it can be huge, it can destroy the lives of many. And you see, when you think about that, well, man, my marriage is huge. And even if it's not what I want it to be right now, and even if I wish she would be different, which I'm not speaking from my heart, I thank God for my marriage. I love my marriage and I love my wife. But even if I was in this frame of mind where I think, yeah, is it really worth saving? Let me tell you something. It is worth saving. I mean, it's worth it. It's worth giving it everything you got. It's worth sacrificing. It's even worth saying I'm wrong when I'm not. If it means that we will work through something and eventually we will have a marriage great again, it's worth it. It's worth everything that you can put into it. So, men, I'm closing out here. You know, why did I preach this day? I don't know. Y'all all love your wives, you know. But, men, the Bible says to. It's a command. It's not a request. It's not even just an admonition. It's not even encouraged. It is a command. It's a command. And it's a command because it's something that if it was anything other than a command, we would find a way to be like, you just are too needy. (laughs) You know, (laughs) or you're just too this, or you're just too that. But no, it's a command. God expects it of us and requires it of us to be loving, to be actively loving toward your wife. The Bible also teaches us that women are the weaker vessel. It tells us in Peter even that we should dwell with them according to knowledge. And he explains what knowledge you're talking about. Knowing that they're the weaker vessel. Weaker in what way? And is the weakness even a negative thing? No, it's not. There there has to be a weaker vessel to an extent. Because two equal forces can only oppose one another and they'll never prevail. And so in one sense they're weaker so that you can lead. But knowing that, what it should, in my mind, it should put into our minds, is that we should be even more compassionate, even more slow to anger, even more understanding, even more patient. Maybe she's not understanding it. Maybe you're not expressing yourself right. But we need to keep in mind, and the reason I say it is because it's what the Bible says. Understand that your wife is weaker. And women, I'll just close with this and not get in too much trouble hopefully but understand that your husband is not the weaker vessel he's not and in the same way not weaker in what ways i'm not saying it's 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 more than talking it's talking about more than just strength we all know generally men are stronger but that's not what it's talking about it's not saying wives submit because your husband is stronger that's not what it means Your husband is stronger. It could possibly be that he's stronger than you're giving him credit for in many things. He's stronger in understanding. He's stronger in his will. He may even be stronger in his love than what you're giving him credit for. But to the women, I would like to say this to the women of the whole world, your your husband is not the weaker vessel. He's not. And so knowing that and having that in mind, I think should help with the thing that the Bible tells the women to do a lot. To be in subjection to their own husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Be in submission to your husbands. I mean, it says it every way that you can think about it. And I'm sure that that's very hard. So I'm not going to sit here and elaborate on it too much. But I do know from experience, it changed me. I've said this so many times. I wasn't really fully a man in my own eyes until she said, you're a man. You're the man. Whatever you say, we're going to do. And then it was like, oh, man, I don't even know. Quit submitting because now I'm I'm responsible for everything. And then you know what? That's how it ought to be. And in God's eyes, that is how it is. And so wives know that also. The Bible does teach that men will face a different judgment than women. Because God holds the man accountable to the level of, I'm not going to get into it, but you can read it. I think it's in Exodus. Yeah, it is in Exodus, chapter twenty-four. That it says, even if the ma- if the man's wife makes a vow to do this, and he holds his silence, he's responsible to see to it that she keeps this vow. It says he's responsible. But if he says, no, 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 we're we're not going that route, then she is free from her vow, and he's not accountable. So I mean, husbands are accountable. For decisions that their wives will not be accountable for. So knowing that, I hope that, that would help it make it, help make it a little bit easier to say, "Hey, let's, that's what you think. Let's do it, because you're the one that's going to face judgment over this, not me. But the woman will face judgment over it if she doesn't do it that way. Now, of course, that can be abused. Y'all know I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about doing it the Bible way. And I do want to say one more thing, and I'm done. Stink bugs everywhere. Oftentimes, submission can be mistaken. Oftentimes, a woman will submit to her own self and think she's submitting to her husband. I've seen it happen. Let me give you an example. She's riled up and madder than a hornet. And she's wanting to say you know, all this kind of stuff and do all this kind of stuff, but instead she says, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to be submissive, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to lash out, I'm not going to act out of the way, I'm not going to say all of this stuff. And so what she really submits to is her own sense of morality or right and wrong, but she hasn't actually submitted to him. She has submitted. Now, this is hard, and I'm not preaching on any woman here. I'm just encouraging you to think about this. I've never seen any of this from anyone here. Okay, I promise you I haven't. But think about it. She's submitting to a principle, but not to her husband. And he knows the difference. He feels the difference. See, submission to the husband has to come from the heart. It has to be in the heart. It has to be something where you say, all of the things that I've said, It's for my marriage. It's because I love him. So I have seen women say, well, I I was going to say this, I was going to say that, but I bit my tongue and I submitted. No, wait a minute. You submitted to a moral principle. But would your husband say? Yeah, she was submissive on that. She was like, I support you. I'm with you. I'm yours. I'm your ride or die. That's something totally different. So I encourage you to think about it that way.